Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today, my guest on Mike's Search for Meaning is Rada Jovovich. Rada is an experienced coach, meta coach, mediator, trainer, and facilitator based in Chicago. Her clients include executives, founders, rising professionals, artists, and coaches, facilitators, slash healers. She specializes in building leadership competencies that maximize individual and team potential and aligning goals with values for individuals and teams to create cultural alignment and collective commitment. She co-leads the Rising Practitioner Circles, a national collaborative community of practice and growth for transformational facilitators, coaches, mediators, consultants, and trainers. She also co-founded a next-gen consultancy, The Darkest Horse, focused on helping teams build integrated future-of-work talent management strategies policies, and cultural practices that support a culture of diversity, equity, accessibility, and radical inclusion. She has extensive public speaking experience on topics such as identity, entrepreneurship, inclusion, transformation, and creativity. And her extra professional achievements include her rugby career. She played for the number two rugby team in the United States. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice and Rada selected the Brave Space Alliance. So please join me in donating to the Brave Space Alliance. The link is in the show notes. And in today's conversation with Rada, we explore topics that are very edgy for me. Rada identifies as a cisgendered queer woman. And so... She talks about what does inclusion really mean? We, we talk about DEI a lot in the workplace. And what Rada points to is that inclusion for a lot of companies means, well, how can we welcome people into this primarily white folks space? And what Rada is really pushing back on is how can we make inclusion really inclusion, that we are celebrating everyone for who they are and not trying to make them more like the, the normative white folks in, in workplaces. We also talk about the myth that slavery or colonization or things that happened hundreds or even maybe thousands of years ago are things that are living in the past that do not affect or shape our current present situation. Trauma is past from generation to generation, and it lives in us. It lives in our bodies. So this conversation is really a rich exploration of that. Radha is really well-versed in uh, science and understanding the nervous system. And so this isn't some woo-woo concept that we're trying to make real. It's real. The science really substantiates and supports this. Uh, Radha covers so much ground. Like I said, this was a really edgy one for me. It has me focusing on my biases, my privilege, the water that we are all swimming in, and how can we create a world that really celebrates all of us. So with all that said, 
settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Radha has for us today. Radha, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hi, thank you so much. <laughs> so good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you on. And boy, am I, I'm excited to cover all the ground that we've just mapped out right before we hit record here. And all of it. All of it. <laughs> no all stone it. unturned. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Very briefly, before we just dive right into it, I ask every one of my guests this question to start the interview. What was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? <laughs> oh, what a good surprise question. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Really happy to be here. Honored, delighted, and very fully here, uh, mm. which is a good thing to be. It feels good. My family's dinner table. So someone, a house guest, I think it was like a friend of mine or one of my siblings once described uh, dinner at my family's house as a dense experience. We are, my family, I have, I, you know, grew up living with both parents, both biological parents and three siblings. So there were six of us and always some weird combination of pets in a very small house. And so there wasn't really like personal space was never a thing. And we are by and large, like we are all energetically very large people in different ways. And most of us are physically large people <laughs> and like loud. And, you know, our brains, while there's, you know, a, a spectrum of sort of neurological ability and, and diversity and stuff in that, they're all brains that do a lot, you know, at, at high speeds and in different ways. And so, yeah, there's just, there was always a lot of noise, a lot of laughing, a lot of wordplay you know, a lot of us bouncing our legs that made the whole table shake. Yeah. So I, I would say um, high energy and I think probably higher chaos than my mom might have wished for. <laughs> I know that that word chaos is something that it, yeah. it seems almost emblematic of your your way of being or like the, the style of operating that you thrive in. Mm -hmm. And that, that's actually one of the threads I was interested in exploring with you. But it sounds like there was lots of chaos and was that as a as a child particularly like was that something that you enjoyed and how has that informed the way that you move through the world now yeah chaos is definitely one of my words and i yeah i've i yes i have a very different i'm learning that i have a very different relationship with chaos than a lot of other people do where that like i actually yes need some you know mm -hmm. i need to be in the paradox of uncertainty to like know that i'm in reality you know and so I think, I'm, I'm sure, you know, how do I answer this in terms of how it roots in my youth? I think that, I think that, you know, I think we're kind of taught and we're meant to understand that chaos and uncertainty in our youth is a thing that leads to primarily wounding and insecurity and, you know, attachment struggles and trauma and all sorts of things. And I think that that is true and also that there is an inevitability of a certain amount of chaos and it's just a matter of whether you pretend you have control or not and like how much control you try to exert. And I think that my parents, for the most part, there's some very important exceptions, but for the most part that my parents were committed to 
knowing that there's a lot of stuff that they can't, won't, and don't need to control. My house was not a house of rules. There were very few rules, and most of them were ones that we said out loud and then laughed at. And there were a few rules that were very important, but by and large, not like a rule-based household. And I think that, yeah, that is, that's definitely informed where I feel safe and comfortable, where like I do like structure in some ways, but I do not like artificial constraint. I have a lot of skepticism about when somebody asserts something as a constraint or a rule, like my first impulse is never like, okay, if you say so, it's always like, says who? Uh According to what? Uh Like, where is that? Tell me more. Where, where, what is, what necessitates that? Because I'm pretty sure that I can find a bunch of exceptions and like, help me understand if this is like the exception that proves the rule or if the rule is dumb, Mm -hmm. you know, or pathological in some way. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know if I totally answer your question, but I think that's what, yeah, I think that's kind of where it is with me. Yeah, there, there seems to be, I mean, my interpretation is that there's a, there's distaste with confinement or at mm-hmm. least uh, artificial confinements. And there's mm-hmm. a, a real authentic ability to question what, why, if, if this is a rule, like, why does it, does it actually need to be a rule? And why is it a rule? Mm-hmm. And if it's not serving, as a rule, then let's find another way to do it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure as an entrepreneur that serves you in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think that it was like, I think that it's also sort of rooted in a lot of like my more, you know, professional and recent obsession with this idea of how bias shows up, right? Because people mm-hmm. pretend that there are sort of objective truths or that there are like universal facts, you know, like the word natural, basically I have all these like little words that when people say them, I'm like, they're like little red flag words and objective is one of them. Natural is a big one, right? When people want to say how people are, you know, my first question is like, I know at least one person that is that way is not that way. Are you saying that person is not human? Mm -hmm. Like, or is less human? Like, Mm -hmm. are you setting up a hierarchy where if you're not that way, you don't count as much. So like, why are we saying that's natural? We can say that it is one of the ways of being. It, we could even say that like, I'm noticing a pattern that a lot of people I'm in community with are this way. But like to then extrapolate that to what is universally true about humanity means that you are implicitly setting up rules about who gets to be counted as human. And I'm very not down with that, right? Because I, I, I live my life um, spending a lot of time in circles with people who don't fit a lot of the definitions of humanity that like, you know, white cis hetero patriarchy has defined as humanity and knowing that they are extraordinarily human and saying like your definitions are, are devaluing the humanity and robbing the humanity of these rich and beautiful humans. So Mm -hmm. that's where my head goes when people make rules is like, according, like, what are you assuming to be true about your user when you design that rule? Mm, yeah. Because I'm pretty sure I'm not on board. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'd love to hear that gives a little bit of context about why you do the work that you do. In- inclusivity seems like it's very important to you. And if rules are favoring a specific, you know, like I would be a perfect example of that, a straight white male. A lot of the rules are geared towards like life is just meant to be a little bit easier for me. So I, I'm gathering that one of the reasons you do the work you do is to 
push on that and say, like, that's not the way it should be. Let's fix this. Mm-hmm. What else brought you into the work that you do? Is it mm-hmm. like a lot of times there's like an ache in our heart or mm-hmm. there's there's something that we are they're moving towards, like a, a beautiful world that we want to create. So what, what else brings you towards the work that you do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's so many little nuggets in what you just said. I will start by focusing on your actual question, (laughs) which is what brings me into that. And I think that, I think I heard you just say like, it shouldn't be that way. And I think that my reaction is, I know that it's not that way, you know, and like this, I think, you know, sorry, I take a lot of pauses because I can, when I can feel myself going too much into my brain space mm-hmm. and I and I know this is part of the answer but it's like a little bit of a tangent is I know that my brain is is according to the normative expectations of what a smart brain does I know that my brain is good mm-hmm. and I have used my brain to great success and great reward throughout my life and I know that you know again cis heteropatriarchy uh, and white supremacy really wants me to stay specifically in my brain and not go anywhere else. And so I've been, had that pattern reinforced and encouraged. And it's very obvious to me that that's not where both all of my truth and even my favorite truths mm-hmm. live. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of truth. There's a lot of value. Brains are magical. They can do great things. I'm, I'm a huge fan of brains and my favorite truths are the ones that feel like pleasure and delight, right? The ones that when I say them, I feel my whole body know that it landed and that it's like safe here. And I think that that is part of what brings me into this equity work. And I'll point out that I, I actually am, I use the word inclusion sometimes because that's what the world uses. I notice that inclusion has an implicit aspect that is inclusion into what and that what is whiteness right? That like when we do inclusion efforts, we're saying, how do we include non-white people into white spaces? How do we include gay people into hetero spaces? How do we, you know, and I actually like, I don't want it to be centered on that dominant normative piece. I want it to be equitable, right? Where everyone sort of gets what they need and it's not in all in relation to whiteness. And so when I think about what brings me into equity work, it is the body and heart knowledge that it's true and that when I am in relationship with someone and I'm able to show up to them in the way that they need, as long as it's still also within my boundaries, that that's where, you know, love lives. It's where art lives. It's where pleasure lives. It's where creativity lives. It's where trust lives. And that felt sense of trust, safety, security, and possibility is really inspiring to me and energizing. And I'll layer on top of that that I am a an enthusiastic Gemini and mega extrovert <laughs> and therefore am obsessed with people and relationship and community. And when I look around, and I feel into not just like what's true in my body, but like what I'm experiencing relationally, the equity is just like, I can't do it with, with like, I can't, I can't be in right relationship and I can't feel mutually supportive and, you know, connected and stuff 
without being really intentional about like what does each of us need and how does each of us show up to each other in a way that's not like assuming that somebody else's experience is my experience. Mm. Well, right in, in this game of ping pong, there's a lot of, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I said something, you, yeah. a lot came up for you, a lot, a lot's uh-huh. bubbling up for me from uh-huh. there. But I think from here, maybe we can just lay out your company, The Darkest Horse. So you, mm-hmm. A lot of what you've named is stuff that you do at The Darkest Horse. So I would mm-hmm. love to hear just what is The Darkest Horse and mm-hmm. why did you start it? And, and maybe like what are some of the things that you work on with folks at organizations to help them build inclusivity, not so that everyone could be more like white people, but that inclusivity means you're different, you're different, you're different. How can we make all these differences uh, mm-hmm. special part of the sauce of this organization? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, so the darkest horses, yeah, my the firm that I co-founded with my beloved co-founder sister, work wife Shante Martinez Thurmond, and she, believe it or not, she is the visionary of this team, and I am what I what I sometimes like to call the idea midwife, or if you're into human design, I am the manifesting generator, and. She and I'd say that because this this was her dream in the beginning. She had this in her. She is one of the many people who has a number of different identities that are not centered and not identified as as human as, you know, all these kind of systems of inequity and oppression set the definition to be and is one of the most human people I know and is brilliant. And she had a real passion around noticing that you only get to hear one version of the story in everything. And specifically she, and these are all things that like I share with her, but I want to honor that these are like her, her visions first and foremost, that like we only hear one story and specifically she, she and I are really excited about the future. We are obsessed with futurism and the role that like technology and you know evolution evolving ways of working and collaborating and interacting with technology and interacting with each other in the context of technology really changes what's possible for the future and what and what we wish for the future and noticing that in that future to do to reach full potential right to get to all of the possibility of the of what that technology enabled future has to offer, we've got to have a lot more than one story. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to first start a podcast called The Darkest Horse that really showcased other versions of that story and how they were shaping and had the potential to shape the future. And she found me, uh, she was also recruiting, working as a, a headhunter and recruiter at the time. And she found me for a healthcare innovation firm and did a phone screen with me and was like, you know, decided that I was something special. And so she kind of like put my resume in her like little special pile. And when she started exploring starting the podcast, she reached out and said, you know, I'd love to have you be one of my first guests. And I was like, oh, let's, you know, we live not too far apart. Let's grab some food. And by the end of lunch, I was like, you know, I would love to just behind the scenes be helping you. Like, this is an awesome project. You're awesome. I believe in you. This is, I'm, I'm really into it. And whatever I can do to support it, I would love to. 
you know, you don't have to pay me. You don't have to do any of that. I just want to like give you my resource. And she was like, okay. And it kind of evolved. I became the co-host and then it evolved even more. And, and we started like companies started hearing our stuff and saying like, can you work with us on this? And we said, cool, let's quit our jobs and do this together. And yeah, and we did that like almost exactly three years ago, four years ago. Gosh, time is confusing. <laughs> and yeah, and just kind of dove in and we've been building this, this firm ever since. And really what we do is we work with what we call sort of innovation forward companies. So like the kinds of companies and groups and organizations, because we also work with like community groups and nonprofits, but the ones that really like vibe with us are people who are people and groups of people and institutions that are oriented toward innovation and oriented toward, you know, kind of dreaming up possibility and changing status quo, right? So like really entrenched bureaucratic institutions are not ready to handle us, but folks and, and groups that like know that they want to be present to an emerging and evolving future find a lot of, of resonance with us. And, and we approach this stuff not as like tips, tricks, policy, but as practices and particularly of embodied practice, right? That we're not trying to program your brain to be less racist. We're actually trying to like work with your body to release supremacist impulses. And I don't mean touching bodies and I don't mean, you know, but like, like we're still doing stuff over Zoom, right? But, but how do we stay emotionally intelligent and mindful and aware of what the like urges and impulses we have that are super like unconscious and against our values, but are sort of programmed into us like intergenerationally, historically, systemically? Mm. Well, I, that's where I would love to go next with you, Rada, is around... So somatically, you're, you're working with someone who is maybe stating out loud that inclusivity, diversity, all this stuff is really important to me, but I have unconscious tendencies that I don't even realize I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing you say is that a lot of that lives in our body mm -hmm. and it's been passed down from generations. So mm -hmm. I, I would love to hear you speak more to what you mean by that. Yeah. Like, how, why does it live in our body and how is it passed down through generations? And I guess, like, what's the context that created all of that? Yeah. And I'll, I'll pause there because I don't want to throw too much in one question. Great. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, because if it went too much further, I'd go back in my brain. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah, even that, I guess I'm like, where do I even want to start? I think so much of our worldview and our understanding, uh, our schema for understanding and interpreting the world and data is established by the time we're four years old, mm -hmm. right? Like, I really like using Kahneman's, right? And like, what is system one thinking and what is system two thinking, where system one thinking is the stuff you don't actually have to like think about, where it's like, you know, one plus one is two. I didn't have to like... Mm -hmm process for that that's programmed into me and i've done enough enough math training that i know that like i know the nine multiplication tables without thinking too like i don't have to like do that but if you ask me like what's 273 times 1925 i have to like write it down and like carry the one right that's system two thinking and 
we have to do a lot of system one thinking because there's so much data coming into us at all times that like we need schema or else, you know, like we wouldn't be able to do things. We wouldn't be able to like move my right hand while I'm also breathing, you know? Mm -hmm. I have to be able to do system one in a lot of this stuff, but a lot of bad stuff gets built into our system one, you know, not only by our own personal lived experience and like, you know, just sort of like I see something happen once and that I learn it as a pattern, but also from media, right? And in and cultural content, implicit information I get from the way that systems are built, right? And like who gets what? And this piece that you're you're asking specifically about of like this intergenerational piece. And there is so much mounting data around the ways that our brains, bodies, and nervous systems are functioning that is sort of epigenetic and is, you know, passed down through generations, both like evolutionarily and like chemically, right? Mm -hmm. Like all this stuff about what happens to you know, pregnant people when they are pregnant and how that creates chemicals that <laughs> impact that baby, right? Which is like kind of obvious, you know, and that changes the formation of our brains, right? It changes what we have access to. It changes a ton of stuff. And, and that like specifically, especially when we're talking about stuff that is wounding, right? That you know, stuff that is the sort of what people talk about is like intergenerational trauma, right? Like a traumatic experience is a moment where something hits your system that it can't handle. And so instead of, you know, building resiliency, it gets wounded, right? And that can happen in my body and then both biologically and cognitively and circumstantially, you know, and I would argue kind of spiritually and energetically be passed down through my line. And so we see the ways that that gets encoded into our nervous system such that, you know, the kind of most basic way to understand the mechanics of it is, and I'm sort of pulling, I'll, I'll, I'll like source that the two main influences for me, I have a lot of influences on this, but my two main, you know, elder influences on this are um, Resma Menachem, mm -hmm. who, you know, has really carried his elders wisdom into a, a structure that he calls somatic abolitionism that I am in the process of kind of learning <laughs> and bringing in. Um, I'm in a, an intensive program with him and his team that is a somatic abolitionism program for, for uh, therapists and and coaches and and we're really kind of learning about this stuff and then the other big source is the is Daniel Goleman's sort of emotional intelligence work where in in that community I'm a I'm a certified meta coach so I am I am a coach of coaches in the kind of Goleman emotional intelligence framework that's very rooted in mindfulness and this understanding of like neuroscience and so all that's to say that like the very basic framework for understanding how these kinds of programming actually act out in ways that are not cognitive is that when something, you know, in, in the trauma mechanism is that when something triggers or activates a story that we have connected to our survival in some way, it reroutes it, like it never gets to your executive brain that actually like makes thoughtful decisions where you can like access your cognition. It 
it never gets there. Instead, it gets routed to a like what we call lizard brain, right? That is reactive and only knows how to fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, you know? And so you never even get to think and make the right choice. You make the program choice. And this is really connected to that thinking fast and slow, but it went in a in a trauma context that there's like a whole spectrum of sizes of, of trauma, right? Trauma can be anywhere as like super trivial as like every time I walk by this piece of furniture, I bang my shin and mm -hmm. it's like, you know, really messed up now all the way to kind of adverse childhood experiences, right? Where there's like also, there's like a there's a specific ACEs test, right? A specific list of of ACE adverse childhood experiences that you like. Those are like formative traumas, right? Those are the big T traumas. Yeah, and it's a whole spectrum between that, and all of them elicit a nervous system instinctive response. Mm -hmm. Again, ranging in severity, the like running into the piece of furniture is like maybe I don't even notice that every time I like look at that piece of furniture, I like feel a little angry, you know, or something like that, all the way up to like major trauma, you know, PTSD type stuff. But that like, that all lives in my nervous system, right? And we can't talk it out. We can't, I can't access it by convincing my cognitive brain to be different because that is not the voice that's speaking when I'm getting that trigger response. Mm -hmm. the, the voice that's speaking is my body. Mm -hmm. It's my nervous system. And so I have to get really good at noticing when I see a certain face, when I hear a certain word, when I look at a certain image, where in my body like lights up, right? Mm -hmm. And what, in what way does it light up? Does it get hot? Does it get tight? Does it like sink? Does it, you know, constrict? Does it, you know, like what, there's a million different words. There's texture, there's, you know, vibration. There's all sorts of things that my body is doing all the time. And that that's where I actually learn more about what's been, what has been put into me from my own lived experience, but also from ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. And from systems and from institutions and, so, you know, and, and all sorts of like super egos, right? That have been sort of imposed on me. Yeah. So I want to summarize back what I heard, partly so that I can internalize all of it because there's lots of useful information in there. And partly so that the audience, I, I'm going to do my best so that the audience has a, like a clear summation of what you just said. Awesome. Can't wait. It's, it's really important. So, <laughs> so I think one component of what you just said and, and the audio cut out for a second, but you were talking about oh, Daniel, shoot, Kahne sorry. Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast, thinking slow, and there's mm -hmm. systems one, systems two, right? Mm -hmm, so that mm -hmm. was, that's what you started with. And so systems one, it reminds me of. I believe it's conscious, unconscious competence, I think is what you're saying, right? It's like, we know how to do it. It's grooved so deeply into us that we don't even realize we're doing it. Or if we're doing it, we can do something else because it doesn't require our thinking brain to do anything. So mm -hmm. that's where systems, and a lot of that is established when we are younger, like mm -hmm. four years or younger. Mm -hmm. And then we don't even realize that's how we're filtering the world. And one of the things that contributes to the way that we're filtering the world is the lived trauma or things that might have got stuck in our past ancestors' bodies. So like our parents, our grandparents. And around this conversation, I mean, you didn't speak to it directly, but 
let's just say someone who is black American, if you go back not that many generations, there's a slave in their family who was, they were not treated as a human being at all and were beaten and probably suffered many, many traumatic experiences. And yeah, so brutalized, brutalized, mm -hmm. totally. And so what I'm hearing you say is that without really doing a whole lot of healing work and paying attention to how that lives in our body and the nervous system, that was passed down to a, a black body today, someone that's living today, who mm -hmm. hasn't, quote unquote, gone through the experience, but has a felt sense of what that experience was, because it's been passed down through the body. And, and then it becomes like this unchallenged, un unconscious thing that lives in us mm -hmm. that we think, oh, you know, that was that happened 200 years ago, that how mm -hmm. could that possibly have an impact today? Mm -hmm. And so that's not necessarily a, a summation of what you said, but that's that's what I was hearing a lot mm -hmm. of the description of what you were saying is that you go to organizations with that that come from uh, and that awareness that we're not going to change the way that you view the world just through your thinking brain. There's mm -hmm. lots of stuff that we need to pay attention to in our body that's been passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of probably unchallenged beliefs that we are all carrying with us because we learned it at such a young age. We don't even realize that there's other perspectives, ways to see the world. This seems to be like a place where adult development theory could come in, where mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. a one way to build the capacity for this is to go, move further down the adult development spectrum. But I, I don't want to get too far into mm -hmm. I just wanted to like reflect back what I was hearing and what, what comes up for you as I say it back. Yeah, I super appreciate that. And I think, yeah, there's, yes. And I'll, a couple of things that I'll offer up in what I hear from you first. Well, first, quick interjection that I'm realizing that usually when I am speaking, you know, publicly or even just like one-on-one -on -one with someone that I have, I am not yet in community with, I usually like to start and we do this at the darkest horse all in like every meeting and session. Um, but I personally like to kind of start by doing like identity disclosures. Cause I think mm -hmm. it's really important for you to understand the like lenses that I'm seeing through and like what, what that make what wisdom that does and does not give me direct access to and i've named like some of them kind of euphemistically along the way but i'll just name really quick for folks who are listening that i i want it to be clear that the, this is a perspective that is coming from a body uh, you know a a living being that is currently in a body that is white that is queer that is cisgendered so my gender identity matches the sex i was assigned at birth is mostly able-bodied i'm hearing impaired but that that was a i grew up without that impairment and born raised educated in the u.s so like citizenship holding and and have had access to you know educational privilege and and you know there's a bunch of other pieces in me but i i think those those are kind of some of the most important pieces you know grew up on stolen land in the midwest and i think it, what I want to name in what you just said is that like that, that story that it's like, well, that happened to somebody else and we don't do that now, right? Like, yes, you had an ancestor who was a human who was enslaved and brutalized, 
but we don't enslave people now, which is also kind of a lie, right? But we don't enslave people in the same exact way anymore. And so that's not here. So that's not yours, right? So that's not in you. So I don't understand why you're acting this way. It's like super gaslighty, you know? And one of the things that Resma says a lot is like, something happened. You feel that way. Your body is acting that way. It's moving that way. It's, it's, it's being that way because something happened and continues to happen. Right. And I think that like, when we pretend that that isn't historically in our lineage, even if you don't believe in like the somatic, like being passed down, like in a physical biological sense, which you should, because science is true. But even if you don't, it is certainly passed down socially, right? And and academically in like whose voices we're hearing and what their biases are, right? And so it's real, it's in our systems, individually, communally, collectively, systemically, It's it is in us and it keeps happening because we bring it with us, right? We're bringing it into every party we go to. So every party has it too. There is no space that we're not carrying it into. The only space that, has any hope of not having it is the space that's willing to say, I know it's here Mm -hmm. and be with that instead of just immediately trying to correct it or suppress it or think it away or whatever, but to like show up to it and be like, I acknowledge, (laughs) you know, I see you and I don't know how to fix it because I'm just one person and it's not my job to fix it, but it is my job to show up and be with it, be honest. Yeah. And that it's not my fault either, mm-hmm. right? That I, I, I hold like cis, white, able-bodied, middle-class, upper-class men like are not the inventors of this. I mean, uh, way back when times they certainly were, but like in this room and this you know, on listening to this podcast, none of you did it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you may be benefiting from it. You may be, you know, like there, there are all sorts of ways that you are reaping rewards from it. I am too. Everybody is right. We all, that's kind of the complexity that like everybody, everybody has ways that we benefit from this stuff. And that's what makes it so sticky. But like, we didn't create it, but we have it. Mm-hmm. You no. Know? So like, let's let go of the, like, blame piece but hold on to the accountability piece right like i can be accountable without being wrong and defective you know i can say i'm sorry i I, like i can take my responsibility without it meaning that i am a bad and fundamentally broken person Mm -hmm. yeah it's so it's just not very present in our society to hold the space for both things to be true like Mm -hmm. i am i am benefiting from the way the system has been set up and it isn't my fault and Mm -hmm. i'm not here to point the finger i'm just here to try and create a a better world or and that can just start with the the conversation like that's one of the things i wanted to explore with you Mm -hmm. how can we have these conversations like that's really where the change is going to be affected right it's Mm -hmm. not that I need to go become an elected official and fix all this. It's mm-hmm. how can I be better resourced to have challenging conversations with the people I already know. I'm already mm-hmm. showing up to work every day and 
having conversations with people and things come up with just naturally. So mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say like, how can, how can we be better resourced to have these types of conversations so that the systems that aren't our fault, but are there don't perpetuate and keep going on forever. And that we don't just keep pretending they don't exist and ignoring them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and my team at the darkest horse, we, believe and the Goldman program and, you know, Resma's program, you know, like a lot, they're one common thread among all of these pieces is a firm belief in a sort of inside out approach, meaning that before you can take action with anybody else or any team or any system or any institution that you got to get right and clear with you. And so I think that self-interrogation is always going to be where we start. And sometimes at The Darkest Horse, we talk about the sort of three phases toward progress where like the first phase is fear mm -hmm. and each of these phases is mission critical, right? Like you have to experience fear because fear is how you know that you're paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to feel the size of this danger, like the real brutalizing, violent impact of anti-black racism. You have to, you have to, you have to look at that. You can't bypass that and say, and just like move into the next phase. Like you've, you've got to know what it is and what that does to people sometimes is makes them collapse, right? Mm -hmm. They like get overwhelmed, you know, and stuff like that. And so the, the challenge in each of these phases is to not get stuck there, right? Is to be like, okay, I'm present to this, I'm present to this fear and I can, you know, I'm feeling it and it's true and I'm not going to put it in a box and I'm not going to also like throw my hands up and say, woe is me and like what, you know, this is too big because you do still have agency, you do still have a million decisions you make every day and you have an opportunity to make them in a way that's in alignment with your values. But you gotta feel the fear. So it's fear and then learning, right? And learning is where a lot of that self-interrogation comes up. And I always say like, you know, if you wanna advocate for, if, if you're a, a person in a white body that wants to advocate for anti-racism, you know, wants to advocate for, for people in black bodies, you have to listen 10 times more than you speak. Mm -hmm. And that's true internally too, right? The, I try to hear myself and, and like really be paying attention to like what's in my system 10 times as much as I try to like project outward because I know that like I can trick myself a lot, you know, so I got to be like collecting the data. I got to get a lot of reps in before I can like assert things. But that practice of listening and learning is really, really critical. It's like fear, then listening and learning. And you also don't want to get stuck there. I have been guilty of this where it's like, I, I get too stuck in like really wanting to take in more information and process and interrogate and stuff and get really getting that muscle really strong. And then like staying there. And then at some point I start, I, I like realize, okay, Rada, now it's time to do something right now. It's time to like take a risk and know that there's a good chance that I will blow it. You know, I've got a lot of years, decades and generations of programming to blow it. <laughs> so there's a good chance that I will devolve to a well-worn pathway, but I still got to try. I got, you know, I've done all the fear. I've done all the, the, not all of it. I've done a lot of fear. I've done a lot of learning. It's time for me to like try something and then do something. And that's that like growth action 
right? Not get stuck in learning and move into like, let me try something. And when I do make a mistake, because it's not even if, it's when, be ready to know that like, I'll survive and I can apologize and I can repair and I can go back and I can learn from that and I can go back into the learning zone for a little bit so that the next time I don't make that same mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that like, it's, it is, I just like really, really want, cause I think especially like overachievers, you know, we work with a lot of high achieving people, you know, a lot of CEOs of startups that are really good at fixing problems, really good at identifying problems and fixing them. And there's such a strong urge to jump into action before really showing up to fear and learning. Mm-hmm. And that, that action will not be the action that a wise, learned, humble person would take. It'll be something where you're using the same tools that you're trying to dismantle to try and fix, you know, like it, it, and fixing is not where it's at either. You know, it's like, let's dream into possibility. Like it's, it, there's just all these like impulses that it'll actually be re perpetuating. If you don't get, if you don't do the grappling first, you know, if you don't really reckon with it, then you're just going to perpetuate it. Do you have a specific example? It could be with you or a client or a friend. It could be anyone at all of what this process, this three-step process might look like. And then I would also love to hear a way in which, like, I want to, I think it could be really helpful to hear an experience that maybe you botched or that someone you Mm -hmm. know botched because it gives us permission to go, oh, right, like, Mm -hmm. I do have some racist tendencies that live in me that they're not my fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It gives, like, a, a... I don't want to say permission slip, but it's like, oh, of course I'm going to make a mistake. Like yeah. that's, it's, I'm battling years and years and years and centuries of yeah. conditioning. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Oh, I've got, I've got entire journals full of lists of, of examples that I can draw from. And I, and that, you know, and I have, I have two people to, to, you know, movement siblings, right. But like our whole community, the community of the three of us is around bringing that stuff to each other and saying, here's what happened and here's what happened in my body and here's how I acted and here's what, you know. So yeah, plenty of, plenty of content. I'll take one, one pretty recent one at The Darkest Horse where, you know, I, my professional background, I am well programmed by, you know, a a lot of these high achieving institutions. I was, I was a consultant in a really reputable, high, you know, fast paced, high reputation consulting firm was my first like corporate job and they trained me process push through all nighters you know like doing i i am like they taught me project management they taught me like urgency they like really taught me how to get stuff done in a way that like really works for corporate america and then i went and i got my mba at you know the number one mba in the the country you know like i i i did all those things and i got all of that you know, corporate success sort of programming into me, like how you, how you run operations, how you do project management. And then I came to the darkest horse where we are trying to liberate ourselves and we're trying to get work done in a corporate context, right? We're like in living in this tension of like, uh, capitalism is really antithetical to what we're trying to do. And yet here we are in the system and we don't really have a choice about that. So how do we balance this? And, you know, I started, I came in kind of hot with like, 
how my body automatically does operations and automatically sets expectations and automatically builds urgency and timeline and, you know, and expectation and stuff like that. And I wounded people. Mm. And thank God I was in a community where they were like, ouch, mm. <laughs> yikes, Rada, ouch, 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 stop, you know? And that was my big fear moment was I was like, oh my God, I am programmed wrong. Like I am programmed to hurt people in the name of productivity. I am programmed and rewarded to wound people with as much urgency and driving and, you know, maximizing. And I went deep fear and I was like, okay, I cannot be trusted to do project management. I've got too much of this toxic stuff programmed into me that I got to work out. And so I stepped back from it and, you know, we, we kept trying to kind of find other people to be doing it. And it was like kind of a whole process because I was still in the room and I was still trying to figure out how like I can be in the room and not like overpower and not, you know, like there was a lot, it was really hard to let go of the things that I've been rewarded for doing for so long and like let somebody else do it and have judgments and, you know, and I just had to like, really be with all of that. And, and I got pretty good at that part. Like I got pretty good at, at like not getting activated and letting it be somebody else. And like, you know, I like really, I mean, it took a lot. I, I stepped on, a, I, I bumped into, um, got a lot of ouches along the way. And then I only just finally recently realized that I was like too stuck in that learning phase. Mm-hmm. I was just like obsessed with being like, I just didn't trust myself. I was like, I don't trust myself to do this. And I finally, just literally within the last like two months, I like, I had a little talk with myself and I was like, Rada, you know, I feel like you've been really learning and humbling and processing with this for kind of a long time now. It's been like kind of years at this point, maybe. And um, I really believe that you can, that you're a good learner. And you've probably figured out a lot by now. And I think, I think it's time to, you know, put on your big girl panties and like give it a whirl. And I was very transparent with my team. I was like, okay, you guys, I am committing to trusting myself to try this again in a way that's not how I used to do it. And I've got some ideas about how I want to do it. And I want to get your permission to like give it a try. And I really want feedback along the way. And I really want to like, see if it feels good. I want to see if it works. I want to, you know, like, like, and I had built enough like trust and kind of communal, you know, connection with them that I could ask them for that. Cause I'm the only white person on my team. Right. So there's, I got to be really thoughtful about what I'm asking for people to do for me. And yeah. And so I got to like ask for that and they were like, yep, we can do that. And, and I'm proud to say it's going really well. <laughs> it's going really well. But like, you know, that that's a thing that I was really good at, but I was really good at it according to a system that, you know, is wounding mm-hmm. and inequitable and ableist, you know? And yeah, so, so, I mean, that's one specific recent example of just like how I had to work it a lot before I could trust myself to like do it right and not perpetuate that kind of harm. Mm-hmm. Well, from here, I would love to segue into, we, we started to touch on the, the somatic component of the work and how so much of this, so much of this work is working the body. Mm-hmm. 
And I would love to hear if someone is hiring the darkest horse and, and you're helping them see like what this is your worldview now and, and this and this is what you're saying you want to be. Like, how would you facilitate that experience of, mm-hmm. of guiding them to maybe starting with the fear in their body and then mm-hmm. coming learning and then action? Like, what would that look like for a client? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got kind of three things that we do. One is fairly kind of traditional, like organizational development style sort of consulting firm or consulting engagement, you know, where it has like four phases, you know, and the first phase is really deeply listening, you know, and we have a sort of mixed methodology way that we like gather quantitative and qualitative data to really understand and map, like, where are we at right now? What are the assets we're working with? What are the like shadows, you know, what's possible? What are, what are, what are the resources? And then we move into this, okay, and now let's dream, you know, let's, let's dream into what we wish for from a very asset based, not, we don't diagnose. We like, we highlight, we do take a very asset based, like strengths based approach of saying like, look at this foundation that you have to build on. Now let's dream of what's possible and let's build this pathway from here to there. So it's like, you know, mapping, dreaming, you know, building and implementing and then accountability, mm-hmm. right? And the accountability is super important because it's like, how do we keep checking and making sure that we're not falling into those old pathways? How do we like hold, hold responsibility? How do we build, how do we repair when inevitable wounding happens, you know? So that's kind of like our classic sort of process. And within that, the two pieces that, that are really kind of important for exactly what you're asking is what like we we like to we have our like foundations program that is really really facilitative like it builds scaffolding it builds kind of like we, like we we do things like say like when we're talking about equity what do we mean right what what does that word mean for us and when we're talking about you know and we're talking about specifically at these five levels, right? There's intrapersonal, there's interpersonal, there's cultural, there's institutional, and there's systemic, right? And we like set that kind of scaffolding. We say like, and this is what it looks like at the systemic level. This is what it looks like at the institution level. Like we can name, you know, we like build that kind of, again, scaffolding so that folks can can have the language and start talking to each other. And in that process, working with their own material, right? And so like, we we don't do a lot of like, words on slides that we're like putting into your brain. We like give you language and then we say, now let's use it together to like talk about what happens in, in your organization. And so that's, that's a big piece of it. But the other really big piece, so that that's, you know, organize, and then this design piece, this like designing dreaming piece is a really like futurism work that we do. But I think that the other, like a really, really important differentiator that's something we're like really, invested in is two words community and practice right that this is never individual work this is work that we do in community and that it's not something where you learn a best practice or tips or tricks or whatever it's that you're in practice with it right and we like to say that we are practicing in the same sense that like you know you have a yoga practice or you have a like whatever practice but also like recognizing that um we are practicing it meaning like kind of like how you practice an instrument right where like you mess up sometimes right and you never achieve you never land you never like it's never over it's like it's all just practice 
And so we build what we call communities of practice and we help build them both intra-organizations. So we help build the kind of container for the organization where they are alternating between like wrestling with content and wrestling with material, right? Where content is like words and phrases and framework and material is like what's coming up in their system, mm-hmm. you know, and they're doing it horizontally with each other instead of us being there like gurus, right? And there's parts of that where we're like, let's build community where like, you know, we we may organize by race or we may organize by gender, you know, like we may create these kind of sacred spaces where we can be in community so that we can then come together in a safe space altogether. And so that is the kind of like ongoing because and what's nice about that is that it doesn't make it episodic. It's not like we gave you a training and now you're done. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this is a thing that you are learning and building competency to be able to do in your community in an ongoing way so that like after you're no longer you know, engaging the darkest horse in an active engagement, you still have good solid practices of like, who do you go to when you get activated in the middle of a meeting because somebody talked over you and your whiteness cannot possibly believe that anybody wouldn't let you finish a sentence. You know, you can like go to your other white bodies and be like, how very dare. And they can be like, yeah, that's an expectation that a lot of people who aren't white don't get to experience. Right. And so you like, building that competency or like, yes, okay, I can, I, I can, I can, I can process this. I can work this communally with my people instead of just like wounding and, and bypassing and overriding and, and all of that stuff. So those are, those are kind of the main pieces that we try and cultivate. Mm-hmm. And then if you were to zoom into, like, I know that you do some one-on-one coaching as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if we just focus on, on one person and mm-hmm. they're bringing some of this to the table, and uh, we'll just call it someone like me, right? So I'm able-bodied, I'm white, straight male. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying I want to show up as a better advocate at work. And I don't really know what my condition tendencies are and but mm-hmm. what unquestioned, unchallenged expectations I'm showing up with. And, I, and I'm getting pissed that people are talking over me at meetings. Mm-hmm. Like, where, where would you start with an individual like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if that was literally the first sentence, I'd be like, tell me about that time. Tell me about a time when somebody talked over you in a meeting and like what, what that story was, Mm -hmm. like what, what came up in that meeting? Like, what was at stake for you when you got pissed? What did it mean to you? Did it feel like you were never going to have your voice heard again? Right. Did it feel like you didn't matter? Did it feel like you weren't being properly treated with dignity. And then when you got angry, what is it that you wanted to do? Right? What is it like, what move did you just impulsively and you know, even the like worst stuff that like, of course, you never would have actually done it. Like, what did you want to do? Did you wanted to, you want to flip the table? You wanted to silence that person, you wanted to, sh- to, you know, violate their dignity back so that they could feel what they did to you like, and just like, and, and like, going there and just saying like, what was it? And I don't, I'm not here to judge because I've felt, I am a mirror, right? I have felt all of those things too, right? And, and yeah, I'm not going to tell you what's right and wrong, but I am going to say that if you don't look at it, you won't be able to do anything with it, right? And so we can just take that example and we can say that's, that is what Resma likes to call a rep, right? There was something that happened in your body and we can look at it. And then the next time that that thing happens, it'll be familiar, you'll say, oh, yeah, 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 this is that thing that happens. 
And I know that I can look around the room and I can remember that I'm here and I'm not in whatever the story that was. And I can like touch my body and I can ground and I can take a breath and I can know that like, I'm not going to die if I don't finish the sentence. Um, and so like, you know, if we're getting, if we're getting into it, like that's one way. But a lot of the coaching, it doesn't, it's not even that explicit. It's just like, we're working on stuff. And then when stuff, when heat comes in, you know, you're like, we'll be working on like challenging relationships, whatever. And it's just like, but I, like I have my little, you know, sensors all over my body. That's like, Ooh, I heard a word. We just breathe into that for a sec. Get to that middle part you said about like, how dare they or whatever, you know, like, can we just like, cause that felt like it mattered. Felt like it had some charge in it. And maybe we don't even have to interrogate it, but we can just sort of like sit and breathe while you're noticing what your body feels like when you say it, you know, and know that you're going to be okay. Orient back to the room, get back in touch with safety. So, yeah. So I think that that's kind of what it sometimes looks like on a one-to-one -one basis. I had a past guest on the podcast who talked about the difference between niceness and kindness. And one mm -hmm. of the things I'm hearing in this is there's a whole lot of niceness that goes on in particular in office and, and work settings where we kind of tamp down the things that we know that we're we quote unquote shouldn't be doing or pretend that those urges and uh, things that live in us don't exist and hide from them. Mm -hmm. And what, what I'm hearing you say is that if we don't make eye contact with those things and, and look at them and address them, that we're doing ourselves an incredible and others an incredible disservice because mm -hmm. there's, there's, some, there's a lot of life in there that needs to be paid attention to. And mm -hmm. until we make that eye contact, we, we don't have agency. It's just a reactive pattern that's mm -hmm. going to live in our body and, and frankly, our minds as well. Mm -hmm. And we're caught in story all the time. And, mm -hmm. and we don't even realize that we're kind of, we're just lying. We're, we're lying and we're, we're perpetuating the same narrative that we are so scared hiding from. Mm -hmm. and, and that comes at a really big energetic cost as well, because mm -hmm. there's all sorts of things that we're keeping bundled up inside of us. And when I say we, I, I mean, this is talk about fear. Everybody. Like this is, yeah. It's a, it's a very edgy conversation for me to be having because mm. frankly I want to be a better advocate and I don't feel very resourced to have these conversations mm. and when people say things that I'm not comfortable with my condition tendency is to run away from it or mm -hmm. to to laugh and to make light of it and say you know mm. it's just they're just an old man or they mm. oh, they didn't mean anything by it or and yeah I want to be better so this feels like a really important conversation that I, I think mm -hmm. more of us need to be having. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Michael, for, yeah, the vulnerability I hear in that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I hear you being really aware of your power mm -hmm. and both the possibility and opportunity, but also like what's terrifying in that. You know, you're like, I have this supercharged thing i don't even know how to point it and hold it and wield it without doing more damage because i know that i have done damage in the past not in pur on purpose but and i hear that and that is really hard it is really scary and i totally honor that and i want you to know there's nothing wrong with you mm -hmm. right you're not defective that's one of the things that 
Resma says all the time, you are not defective. Something happened and continues to happen. And it's not, it's not even from you. It's way bigger than you. It just happens to be in your body, just like it's in everybody else's body. And, and I think that like, yeah, that, that tendency to think that it's possible for us to have one inner system and be broadcasting out something different, you know, that we can tamp that down and be mm -hmm. good with our words, you know, is a lie. Mm -hmm. And it, it is something that specifically white supremacy tries to teach us because white supremacy tries to cut us off at the neck and say, there's nothing down there. Don't pay attention to that. Just do the brain stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it encourages that kind of dissociation and that I think that a lot of it is about being able to tune in to what signal energetic, because you're going to send that signal, whatever it is that's in your body, it is being broadcast. Mm -hmm. Whether you think you're tamping it down or not, it is being broadcast. And it's possible that other people who are in white bodies can't pick it up, but everybody else can because they've been doing that forever because that's a, their survival depends on it. And even if they can't name it, they're feeling it and it's working their system too, right? Like all of that is happening no, ma no matter how clever you think you are. And I had to learn that, right? I thought that I could like, just like own it with my brain. And the, that way leads to lies, right? And dishonesty and the dissonance that comes from the message that your like nervous system is sending and the message that your words are sending. And when those two things don't match, it's really scary to everybody else, right? When I can like feel one thing, even if I'm not conscious of it, even if I can't like name it, but if my body can feel one thing from your body and is hearing a, a, a message from you that is, doesn't feel like it's in alignment with that, my body and my brain are confused and they're at odds. And that is very disorienting. And I will not feel trust for you. And I will not feel safety with you. And so it is mission critical. <laughs> I'm just I can't believe I've used like a military term twice now in, in, <laughs> in this, but there it is again. It is essential that we are able to hear our own signal well enough that the signal that we're communicating is in uh, sync with it, right? Like I use sound waves a lot, but like if you have two different sound waves, they, they get dissonant, right? And you get feedback. But if the two sound waves have the same wavelength, they get amplified, right? Mm. And they get clearer mm. and they get louder. And so the more that you can actually like attune to and be in integrity with that inner nervous system message, the more clear and receivable and trustable your message is to the other bodies that you're in community with, that you're in collaboration with. And that's why I'm just so obsessed with like, really being able to tune into that and be in right practice with it. And, you know, and, and a big part of that is accepting what's true instead of wishing it was different. Mm -hmm. Like saying like, yeah, man, I do really like this power. Yeah. And sometimes it does feel like life or death. Uh, and I might not be able to, I can really slowly over time to teach myself a new truth. But like, it's not going to be today. So I at least need to be honest about what my limitations are and what I'm, what I'm capable of. 
So this is exactly where the practices would come in. I'd be mm -hmm. curious to hear, I know that we don't want to be overly prescriptive and say that a practice that works for you is what you'd prescribe for everyone, especially as it pertains to this conversation where mm -hmm. we're focused on how diverse every single person is. And mm -hmm. it really matters where someone's coming from, the way they're raised, their gender, their sexual orientation, all that stuff. But that said, I, I would love to know what are mm -hmm. some practices that you point people towards so that they can get the reps in like Resma says. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the the practice is so I'll, I'll say two things one um is whatever method that like enables interoception for you right and interoception like where perception is like being able to perceive from external right mm -hmm. interoception is being able to like receive that information internally so whatever practice gets you able to like check in with whatever part or parts of your body you have access to, you know, and lots of people have like different zones that you can't talk to. That's okay. Like you start with what works. Um, I really like body scans. I really like meditation. I really like exercise. I really like being in bodies of water. You know, I like being in the sun. Like all of those are things that like give me resource. I really like petting my dog, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's just like things like that. There's like a nervous system synchronization that gives me, you know, like with another kind of creature that I don't have a complicated relationship with, you know? So there's like a lot of different ways that can like enable our ability to just like turn a little inward in a way that feels safe. And that's actually harder for bodies that are carrying a lot of trauma because going inward can be a really scary thing. So like, I want to also acknowledge the like kind of privilege in even doing that work. So it's, it's something you do got to kind of approach with care and gentleness and, and like compassion and not trying to like be achieving on that too. But I think the other piece that I'll call in is like what we know to be true about how we work with trauma, right? That like that when we are activated, when we're triggered, we are pulled to somewhere else that something else happened, right? Like it's like a movie starts playing that's like a, a movie from when you were a kid or from one of your ancestors or, from you know, and like unconsciously you, you're not here anymore. You're there, right? You lose access to like presence. And that like what we, what, you know, is the current sort of school of thought around like what we do when we're activated is we just try to get back in touch with reality. And, you know, for anybody who's ever had like an anxiety attack or a panic attack, one of the things that, you know, therapists will teach you is to just like pick an object and just see how much you can notice about it, right? You can notice like the outline of it first right? And then you can notice what color it is. And then you can, or like, you know, these other exercises with like, name three things you can hear, you know, name three things you can see, name three things you can feel, name, you know, like just really getting back into your senses. Mm -hmm. And just like, you know, and, and Resma teaches us to do what he calls orienting, where you like look around the room and you notice where the exit is and you notice where the windows are. You know that you look right behind you and see that there's nobody about to attack you. You know, you like get, you just like, you notice the chair you're sitting on. Like you just get back in this space, in this body, in this time and just regrounding and you breathe, you know, like anything that can kind of bring you back into the reality and, and, you know, and then if you're resourced enough to get back into your body with those other, you know, with those, with 
like touching stuff, you know, you can touch your own body, right? I like to put my hands on yeah. my face. I put them on my chest. I put them on my my hips, you know, I rub my thighs, you know, to, so that I can feel myself here. I rock a lot. I do a lot of rocking. I make noises. I moan. I grunt. You know, I, I love being on Zoom because I can hit mute and I can just be like, you know, and nobody <laughs> has to hear me. Right. But like, that's the sound that like, like even just doing it just now, it's just like, oh, that felt good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I move my jaw around because my jaw gets really tight when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm caught up. You know, it's just, it's it really like, there's so many options that you just like find something that feels good. You just, you can do that one thing forever. You know, like some people have like a little object, like a comfort, you know, a blankie or a stone or a like, you know, that's just their, their resource thing that they touch and they're like, I'm okay. You know, like I have a friend who has a tattoo that, does, you know, rubs the tattoo and it's like, I'm here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like, what, what gets you back in touch with reality and back in touch with your body? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for all that. There's, I have taken a course, I don't know if you're familiar with positive intelligence, Mm -hmm. but one of the things I was astounded by how useful it's been for me is he calls it PQ reps and it's Mm -hmm. the, it's the coming to the senses that you were describing. And Mm -hmm. one of them is to just rub your Mm -hmm. two fingertips together Mm -hmm. and then to pay attention like to the exquisite details like the different ridges in your Mm -hmm. fingers and the contact. Mm -hmm and uh how that can really reorient ourselves back into the present moment well, instead of us playing that narrative in our head or leaving here to go there it brings mm-hmm. us back into like hey i'm i'm still that's why doing this body work is so important and why i've developed a passion for it is that it has opened me into this world of hey this is this is always here my body is always here in this present moment mm-hmm. and if i lose touch with that then here are some ways i can get back into the present moment and and i do acknowledge the privilege that i haven't gone through any capital t traumatic experiences and and that might not be safe for mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. that's listening and to that end i would love to hear do you have I don't know, specific types of therapy, therapy, therapists, uh, Mm -hmm. things that people that are, that don't feel safe going to their body or don't really have the ability to tap into like that they've been living neck up for so Mm -hmm. long that it doesn't feel possible. Like, or it's, they might not even know we've been talking about for the past hour. Like, totally. where would you point uh, that person? Yeah. I love what you just said. I am, I, I do like positive psychology stuff, but I'm, I've, pretty well familiar, although I haven't been directly trained. Yeah, I think that that's the kind of one. So one of the things that I, uh, that's really important to me and my work and my practice and how I show up is like knowing when to say like, I don't have any business giving an opinion on that. And so part of me is like, yeah, that sounds out of my range, right? Like I actually, I have some limited capacity to be able to work with folks who like, that that body stuff is really not safe and it's i have no judgment of that i have no i I have nothing but compassion of it and for it and i i think that like i really really want to make space for the reality that there are people with both directly lived experience and like ancestral trauma and stuff like that that like dissociating is the best option sometimes you know like sometimes like I don't want to get into like graphic stories, but like you can imagine folks who, you know, whose ancestors 
were enslaved and you know the the unthinkable brutality that those bodies and the bodies that they both had to endure themselves and witness um happening to bodies that looked like theirs right um their family their loved ones their community like that you can't be in that and not dissociate there's no way to withstand that and so it's not even like yeah so i'm i'm not even going to say that like doing that is bad you know sometimes that is survival yes and i have a great wish for liberation from that and i think i think that yeah that's the point at which like therapists they're like a trauma informed you know and i think all therapists to some extent are trauma informed but i think that there's specifically like you know there's a lot of therapists in my somatic abolitionism program like if i'm going to if i if i'm somebody who identifies with any of that body unsafety i'm finding somebody who has done specifically like been in resma's community for somatic abolitionism right like i'm going to that list of people he's i think he's got some on his website like i'm going to those people and saying like okay i can trust you to be able to hold this container without perpetuating you know and like to like give me lots of space to be with this but yeah i think that's probably the best that i can do from some sort of what i would trust myself to speak on yeah i i appreciate that a lot well was there anything that we haven't brought into the conversation so far that you would like to invite in before I ask just a couple more questions? Well, I think no, but what I want to do a quick little invitation, both for myself and for you and anybody listening, is just notice where your body's at right now, right? Like I've said a lot, both of us, we've said a lot of stuff that has had impact, right? That some of it's stuff that we've wanted to push away from, some of it's that we wanted to pull closer, some that made our hearts Eat faster or slower, some that made us, our shoulders go up to our ears, right? Some of us made us drop into our belly, right? And that that can happen five times in a sentence. You can have all those things happen, right? So I'm just inviting a quick moment to just like notice, are you feeling activated? Are you feeling resourced? Are you feeling confused? Are you feeling afraid? you feeling urgency to to do something so just i guess that's what i and i i don't want you to change any of it i don't want you to think any of it's good or bad i don't want you to even necessarily try and figure out the why behind it but just to like notice the data because that's where you're that's where you are right now and it's what's true right now and it's what's going to change how you're doing whatever you're doing whether it's listening to us or you know doing cleaning you know like whatever driving yeah so i just throw that invitation in for a second well the invitation is very welcome i i always appreciate moments to check in with myself whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable they're mm -hmm. it's, it's very important and so thank you for that yeah one of the things that we didn't cover that i wanted to ask you was we've talked about things that it can be really really heavy Mm -hmm. And I experience you as someone who brings in a lot of play and joy mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. your work too. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would love to hear how you weave both of those things together. It's, it might seem counter to what we've spoken about so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It can be hard sometimes. And I, 
Yeah, it can be hard sometimes. And I think different people have different like ways that feel about that. I think that like, so there's a, there's a, there's a woman that, that you and I are both in community with, uh, Julianne Otis, who she has, she talks a lot about ease Mm -hmm. and the laws of ease and laws, meaning not like rules, but like, you know, kind of like the laws of physics, just like how ease works. And my favorite on her list is of the kind of like, you know, like 10 commandments of ease, right? One of them is that the way to ease is through ease, by which she sort of means that like, you don't, you don't effort really hard now so that you have ease later, right? Uh-huh. Like if you're in the practice of efforting, that's what you're practicing. Uh-huh. And so, and you know, and, and that the darkest horse and, and particularly uh, Fahad Pujwani, who's, you know, one of our brilliant minds, he really grounds us in like how the process is the product, right? That like, it's about that practice, it's about that process. And like, we have to build that which we want to create into how we are creating. And so for me, that which I wish to create has a lot of joy and play and delight and pleasure and, you know, looseness, you know, and wateriness. And I know that I can't just assume it exists now, but it means that I need to bring it into the process and into the practice because I'm not going to be tight now so that I can be loose later. I'm not going to be serious now so that I can be funny later. I have to be with integrity toward what I'm working toward as I'm working or else it won't be there. And so that is, I think, how... I try and bring that kind of playfulness in is not to like bypass and not to like minimize and not to, you know, so I can say a thing in truth as it is in a way that does allow for laughter and that that just needs for me, that just needs to be in the process, right? Because it's part of, for me, it's, it's part of my liberated self, right? And I, and I want to, I always, I never say the word liberated without acknowledging that that's that, that word, that is a word that belongs to black feminism and I'm borrowing it and I, you know, um, and I'm honoring that tradition and I'm learning from that tradition. And, and I, in the ways that I want that in my body, part of that's going to be filled with joy and play. So I want to bring that in along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it speaks again to the practice and the reps, right? If we, if we're not doing that on a moment to moment, daily, weekly basis, that's, we're not going to just randomly start doing it at some later date, which is yeah. We got to practice. We got to learn how to do it. Yes. Yeah. So just a couple more questions, Rada. Great. What's a, an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Great. Oh, so many, so so many. What do I pick? I think, you know, oh, so many. Okay, so piggybacking off of your last question, I think, you know, the team at the darkest horse, we, we are a team of people who just love each other so much. Mm. And, and we, we laugh, we spend so much of our time laughing, you know, about really serious stuff, right? Like just yesterday, we got together, we have a big client engagement, and we're like, in this learning mapping phase. And we're just that's the part that sometimes is the hardest part. Because that's where we're just like, really trying to before we're even with like we're not even we haven't even like brought it into them yet we're just over here receiving right and we're like what are we witnessing you know what what harm do we see happening and we were having a conversation about where we were trying to like 
take all of this quantitative and qualitative data and and like integrate it into and synthesize it into like what does that mean that our like our wishes are you know for this firm and it can be a kind of intense thing but like we we found ways to laugh about it because it's not just them it's not from them it's like this is this is all this is this is the world this is the universe this is our humanity this is like this is everything and so like we could either collapse or we could be like man they're doing that thing they're uh -huh. doing that thing that rada used to do <laughs> you know like uh -huh. and you know we laugh and we get real and we end like every meeting we we're like I, the number of meetings i have every day that end with uh, us saying i love you to each other mm. is wild mm -hmm. like Man, I've liked people I've worked with a lot, you know, and I've got a lot of really close, intimate relationships with some people, but like never would I have been in a situation where like we're literally where we, you know, we would have thought it was inappropriate or something like that mm -hmm. to like end mm -hmm. meetings by saying I love you. And it's just true because we do, you know, yeah. and that feels like magic. Uh -huh. It feels it feels what's the word? It feels like disruptive there's a there's a more you know that feels yeah it feels radical yeah good word for it to be so in love with my coworkers. Mm -hmm. yeah so that's one i'm just noticing what that evokes in my body now just like we did uh 10 minutes ago that mm -hmm. it, my heart is is opening and mm. i can feel that there's also like a yearning for that to be true in, in every office in our country, in the world. Like what if we could end meetings by saying I love you to the people that we spend so much time with and work with? What a beautiful thing. Yeah. And mean it, right? Yeah. I mean it, yeah. Right. Not like Feel a, it. You know, hey, like honey, when I say uh, it, I'm I feel out, it in I... my gut. Yeah. 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 Thank you for reflecting that. Mm-hmm. What is something that people would be surprised to learn about you? So <laughs> the number one thing that I, I didn't, I, I've started like disclosing this regularly because people are so surprised by it. And I feel like it's, it, it's coming to be really clear to me that it's actually a very important part of understanding me is that I did not, I, I, I like to say I like learned how to feel feelings in the year 2015. <laughs> so at the time of this recording, that is single digits years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And look at me now, man, do I feel some feelings, right? It's like I, all I do all day is feel feelings and, and support other people in feeling feelings, right? And I made it until 2015. And I like up until that point, the feeling that I had really easy access to was anger. I was really good at being impatient. I had learned from my family of origin that feelings are the thing that keep you from doing the important stuff. And so you need to get them out of the way so that you can actually show up and do the work, you know? Mm -hmm. And I went through a lot at the end of 2014. I had been engaged and we broke up. I had my grandfather, who was like one of the most important people in a lot of ways to me, died you know, there was, there was just like a lot, I had a lot of grief and a lot of big feelings and I got my first therapist and I remember sitting in her office and just like wailing, you know, and being like, 
I don't know how to do this. You know, like, I don't know what to do with this stuff. And she was like, you just feel it. And I was like, "Uh uh-uh, nope, I need a process. I need a framework. And like that, maybe that's why I found emotional intelligence. You know, and I found all this stuff. Like I became a very avid student of how do we feel feelings? And it has changed my life, you know, and, and I just like, I really lived in my brain. I really, I was really good at it and it got me really far. You know, I was halfway through my MBA at Wharton before I learned that feelings existed in me, you know, and man, has it been a journey? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that truth is like a really important thing about me. You know, is that like that wasn't a thing that I had access to. And um, and so I'm really committed and obsessed to getting good at it. Okay. Love it. Well, yeah. before I ask my very final question, I'll link to all this in the show notes. But where can people connect with you online? Great. You know, I'm always I, I don't know if this is lame or like points to me as an elder millennial, but LinkedIn is great. I don't use Facebook. So yeah, so just, you know, me personally on LinkedIn is wonderful. I I have a a, a pretty active relationship with Instagram. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think that you can email me, right? Like put my put my email, it's just Rada, R-A-D-A at the darkesthorse.com. And I yeah, I I make a lot of time and space for just people who emerge you know, and happy to, if if you're pissed about anything I said, I'm happy to hold space for that. You know, like I got no problem with that. I have, I'm, I am prepared and tempered and fortified to receive all of that and, and, um, discern what parts are your stuff and what parts are actually helpful for me. Yeah. So I, I think those are probably, I think probably LinkedIn or just like emailing me, uh, are where I would, point you. I mean, there's the website, thedarkersource.com. There's my website, radiovich.com. You know, there's content out there. There's the Darkest Horse podcast that's a little bit on hold, but will be re-emerging. So yeah, get in touch. Sounds good. Thank you, Rada. And the final question I ask all my guests, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I want to know, and I'm really looking forward to your answer, in your words, in Rada's words, what uh-huh. does it mean to live a meaningful life? Uh-huh. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Meaningful. See, and this is my this is my like my constant impulse to challenge everything, right? Is mm-hmm. like who says like what the fuck sorry, what what does meaningful mean? You can curse. Yeah, thank you. You're right. What is what is meaningful? Who's a meaningful what and why does why does life need to have meaning? But now that I've gotten that on my system, I think that like for me, what matters, I think I like to, I like to constantly be in pursuit of living in my full humanity. And to me, what it means to be human is being able to access pleasure, right? Like the only, the only real thing that I can do that a computer can't do is like feel feelings and especially pleasure, right? And I think that the more that we get in, in, in good relationship with feelings, and instead of having judgment of them as being good and bad, the more that like any feeling can be rooted in pleasure, right? Because it's like, ooh, I'm alive, mm-hmm. you know? And like, that's how you enjoy art, right? 
is by being rooted in the humanity of your feelings and stuff. And art really matters a lot to me. So I think, I think that anything, and I, and I believe that being able to access that is being able to like know what's in my system and be okay with it. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I think it's probably wholeness, it's integration, it's, you know, and I, I think that all this like work stuff and other interpersonal relationships and stuff like that, like those are all just things that we need in order to enable our ability to heal mm -hmm. and be whole is my kind of attitude about it. And it's the hardest stuff, but it's the stuff that gets you there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that's probably, yeah. And it, none of the achievement, none of, I'm not into legacy. I'm not into, yeah, I'm not into milestones like that. I'm just into like enjoying the process of it. Because mm. why else would I be doing any of it if it's not fun along the way? You're here. Yeah. Great. Let's all do that, huh? <laughs> Take a nice breath. Yeah. Healing and wholeness are two words that carry import for me as well. And one of the foundations of this podcast is just to point people in certain directions that facilitate and cultivate healing and wholeness. And mm -hmm. what I'm hearing you say about pleasure at the end here is that pleasure isn't just a word that is synonymous with joy. It's our full capacity of the breadth of different things that we can feel. And mm -hmm. sometimes pleasure is to really be with our, our sorrow and it's mm -hmm. to be with our anger and it's mm -hmm. just to really be with our whole human experience. Mm -hmm. And this conversation to me really is something that's important with regard to healing and wholeness, because if we don't pay attention to conversations like this and, and ways that we can show up differently and how we're part of damaging systems, then they go on and, and we don't even realize that the ways that they're hurting us. So mm -hmm. as I named earlier in this conversation, this was a, a little bit of an edgier one for me, but it was mm -hmm. a really important one. And I hope that that it shines through and that, that people see how much this matters to me and and hopefully it gives them some some ways that they can challenge uh, how they've been showing up in their life. And that's how it happens, right? It's one, one conversation, one relationship at a time. So thank you for sharing all of this. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's an honor um, to be with you in a moment of edge, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest honors we can kind of give to each other is like inviting each other into those important moments, right? Mm -hmm. The the like and trusting me that like I wasn't gonna wound you or shame you in that process, right? That I could hold you and that I can give you the dignity that you deserve. So I I, I feel that and I appreciate it and um and ditto, right? So yeah, so thank you. I'm feeling a lot of appreciation gratitude and feeling really grounded i'm very like i can feel my feet you know yeah mm -hmm. um so yeah really appreciate you yeah i appreciate you too rada and uh to all the listeners whenever you're listening i hope that you have a good rest of your day or evening and take good care lots of love yeah thanks thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to mike's search for meaning if you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.
Thank you.